Anonymous is a news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving the community since 1890, and this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Sunday, October 20th, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. So here in the studio with me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week are the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourselves. I'm Abby Sharpentier, the news editor. I'm Catherine Eston, an assistant news editor. I'm Cassie McGrath, assistant news editor. I'm Irina Kostaka, assistant news editor. And I'm Chris McLaughlin, also an assistant news editor. Cool. So uh, our first story for this week is um, uh, about the first uh, vape death in Massachusetts. Uh, So Cassie, if you want to talk about that. Uh, Yeah, so on October 7th, health officials in Massachusetts reported that a woman from Hampshire County in her her 60s died from a vape-related illness, Um, and this was the first death in Massachusetts that was linked to vaping or e-cigarettes. So this story followed the reaction of some state officials and students and faculty on campus. Um, So following Governor Baker's uh, public health emergency, declaration of a public health emergency um, in the form of ban of all vaping products, we've seen some stores have closed and the products have been moved out of like gas stations and other places that they were sold. And so with following this regulation, people on campus, specifically a nursing major, Carrie Liu explains that while these products have been removed, um, a lot of the illnesses have been linked to THC uh, street products, um, and a lot of the deaths have been caused by those as well. Um, And then I spoke to Sarah Dupont, who's a graduate assistant of tobacco-free UMass, who talked about how vaping on its own is a, um, a public health issue. Um, and that the FDA is still investigating uh, whether or not this can, these products can help people quit smoking and for researching how they are not good for you and how a big tobacco company, Altria, um, owns Juul, which um, also owns Mar- Marlboro. So um, she also reached, she also talks about some of the resources for students who um, are not are trying to quit jeweling um, on campus, and one of those includes at UHS how um, students get ten dollars off a two week supply of nicotine replacement therapy um, to help them stop using these products for their health and to avoid more deaths. One thing that's really like interesting about this whole situation is that uh, in the article you said as of October fourteenth it was twenty six deaths. Mm-hmm. I believe the first death that happened was like late August. Mm-hmm. I don't know the exact date, so it's crazy that all these deaths have happened in the span of two months and I think maybe like when when more research is done there will be like a more like clearer answer why this is happening so suddenly. Mm-hmm. Yeah I think also like a lot of young people are not aware of these products effect on them um, just because people think oh it's better than a cigarette but um, Sarah Dupont said that um, in one jewel pod is one jewel pod has as much nicotine as an entire pack of cigarettes which is 20 cigarettes um, so there's just there needs to be like more awareness about what these products actually are putting into people's systems and things like that. Um, so I think that this break from the products might be good for people to like really evaluate whether or not these products are worth their money and worth risking their health. Yeah, I think it will also give time for like schools to set up like kind of education programs similar to what what's done with like cigarettes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So so students can learn kind of like the like the dangers and how to safely use these products. Uh, I'm more just curious if anyone's noticed a drop in the number of students vaping on campus uh, over the past few months as we've been seeing, you know, bans. Now there's been a death in Massachusetts uh, because I'm not sure if I've noticed the difference, mm-hmm. um, but I'd be interested if anyone else has seen that change. Yeah, I've been noticed like a huge difference 
personally, but like even before I didn't, I wouldn't see like a ton of students vaping in general, just at least just throughout the day. Um, and I don't think that's really changed, but, um, but that's just more from just like observations. Also, um, I'd say like a big part of this story was that a lot of the deaths were linked to like THC products, especially like street products. And I know of, of students who like were aware of this and were like, oh, whatever, like I'll probably be fine. Um, so I think the fact that after the death was like so close to campus, people might have been like, oh, wow, like maybe this is something that we should look into. So we'll um, move on to our next story. This is a story that I wrote about Hampshire College. So um, Hampshire College announced that it's going to accept a spring 2020 class. So according to a September 24th press release, uh, the Hampshire Board of Trustees voted to restore spring admissions. This is coming uh, shortly after they had announced that they would uh, have admissions for fall 2020 as well. And this whole situation comes after back in I believe it was around like January, February this year that the school announced that, that it was looking for a strategic partner and ha was having financial um, insecurities and that it would be accepting a limited freshman class. They ended up accepting only 12 students for this year, but they raised its projection of total enrollment uh, to around 700 to 750 students. And they're looking for over like the next three years to increase that uh, total enrollment to around 700 to 800. And then um, hopefully... Uh, in, in four years to have full a full uh, four classes again and then have a Roman over a thousand. Yeah, so Hampshire College is kind of going through like a tra transitionary phase. They're creating new education models and this is kind of a reaction to um, the New England Commission of Higher Education is going to decide on the school's accreditation in November. So they'll determine if they're going to withdraw Hampshire's accreditation or put it on put it on probation. So the school is creating their education models and they're going to present this plan to the uh, NECHE in November and that's when they'll decide. Yeah, so uh, what are you guys thoughts on this? I think it's good for the long term for Hampshire College that they're looking to revamp their the number of students that they have enrolled at the school. I was shocked when I heard that it was only 12 that they have there right now and it's just kind of strange to even imagine like an entire class year of just 12 students and just being one of those students especially. So I think it's definitely um, a step in the right direction for the vitality of Hampshire College going forward. Yeah, definitely. Um, they also um, they decided they're not going to, even though they initially thought about finding a partner that they ended up deciding from the previous um, interim president, uh, Ken Rosenthal, that they were gonna, the board voted that they would stay independent and instead raise money. So it's definitely gonna be like a slow transitionary process to kind of um, be able to make it to having like a uh, full like four classes. Uh, I was just gonna say, it must be interesting to be a student applying there right now. Uh, I remember when they accepted the 15 students, the university or the college was very happy of the trust that those students put in the school. And I'd be interested to see how that class dynamic develops of, you know, the 15 people that started this year, I'm sure must be a tight knit group being the only freshman. Uh, and then to gain more in the spring and next year, have this growth so gradually occur that by the time the students, the 15 who entered this fall graduate, they won't ever remember Hampshire that it was at its full strength. I wonder um, how these students will in the future like play a role in like changing the school um, because 
the, the fact that they like still really were passionate about going to Hampshire College after everything that's happened shows that they have like a lot of trust in the school and maybe could it could be a turning point for them. Yeah, maybe like the administration will, will want to hear what they have to say mm-hmm. considering they like wanted to come right. to the school so much. Cool. So um, I guess we'll move on to our third story, which um, Catherine, you wrote this. It was about um, uh, the campus being impacted by a power outage. Oh, sure. So last Wednesday on October 16th, uh, about 11.15 p.m. during, we had a, I think a lot of news reporters were calling it a nor'easter, but since it's early in the season, not snow, it was just rain. Uh, so it was very windy, very rainy. And around 11.15 p.m., several residential areas lost power. So that included the uh, Commonwealth Honors College, uh, Southwest Residential Area, and Northeast Residential Area. Uh, it was attributed to trees that fell over during the storm on power lines, um, and it took them uh, just over an hour to repair everything. Uh, actually, a bit longer than an hour, uh, because it wasn't until around 12.45 that everything was back up and together, so about 90 minutes. Um, and it was something that was very common in Western Massachusetts. Uh, Eversource reported that over 1,000 residents in Amherst and thousands more down the Pioneer Valley lost power. Um, but it was interesting to see it took about an hour for UMass to put out an alert uh, regarding to the power, or related to the power. Uh, so a lot of students started tweeting about it before uh, the university ever commented on it. But a lot of the other areas of campus remained unimpacted, like the library and the other residential areas were fine. Did you guys like individually have any experiences with the power outage? My building did go out. Uh, I had it running on generators, though, so we had partial light. Uh, but I know a lot of the students that lived in Southwest had no light at all. And we're kind of just stuck in the dark building because it was also the middle of the night. Um, you know, it wasn't during the day or anything. People were in their rooms. I live with um, four people, myself included, and every, pretty much every single one of us was at a different point on campus when it happened. So I was getting like all their perspectives. Um, I knew someone who was in Northeast and it went dark there. Um, where I was in the Commonwealth Honors College, um, it was just like, it was like Catherine said, um, like generator power. So you couldn't like touch the light switches or do anything like that. I had a, um, a person I know who um, was in the library and they were completely fine, completely unaffected. So it was just interesting to see, depending on where you were, how it impact- impacted you essentially. Right, cool. Um, so for our, uh, our fourth story for this week, uh, this is about a watch party that was held for the um, Democratic uh, primary debate. Uh, Chris, you wrote this? Yeah, so this past Tuesday was the fourth Democratic presidential primary debate. Um, and what stood out about this debate was that it was actually the one with the largest number of candidates on stage thus far. It had an unprecedented 12 candidates um, from the current front runners like Joe Biden, Elizabeth Warren, and Bernie Sanders to some of the folks who are not polling as well, who are more on the margins like Tom Steyer and Tulsi Gabbard. So um, there was about, I'd say roughly 50 to 60 students at the highest point who attended. Um, it was organized by Free the Facts, which is a, an educational nonprofit organization that seeks to expose students to not one particular way of thinking they want to really bring out just like the pure facts rather than partisan divides. So they'll bring in, uh, they'll focus on what are normally nonpartisan issues like Social Security, Medicare, um, pensions. They're pilot testing something with uh, student loans right now. And basically um, one of their student ambassadors, Timothy Ennis, who's also the president of UMass Democrats, he helped to organize this event in Herder Hall um, where people, no matter their political leaning, could come 
uh, watch the debates together, even if they're a more moderate Democrat, a Republican, independent, a liberal Democrat. Um, it's really just an event for people to watch. And people seem to be getting into it. Whenever the candidates were on stage and did something, either their reactions were humorous or um, they said something, the crowd would kind of like, they would, they would cheer, they would, they would laugh out loud. Um, so it was um, just a pretty wholesome watch party, I would say. Would you say there was like a general consensus among the audience of, towards like a specific candidate? Um, not that I could particularly tell. There were certainly, when certain kids came up, people would shout out one-liners occasionally. So it's hard to tell. I talked to a few students and um, definitely um, Elizabeth Warren seems to be popular. Other people said Pete Buttigieg um, and even like Sanders. Um, I didn't really see anybody who was too keen on Biden though. Um, if I'm being honest, but um, it seems as though most people were there to listen and see what the candidates have to say for themselves. Uh, did you, when you talked to students, uh, even though the event was officially nonpartisan, uh, did you notice a lot of students who weren't Democrats there? Not that I could tell. I thought it it was a lot of like poli sci students, though. I think that was the demographic that was most prominent there. Yeah, I, I can testify we got a lot of emails about the watch party in the days leading up to it. So it wouldn't shock me that there were a lot of poli-sci students there. Um, I'm curious to see if any, or to ask if anyone um, was talking, like, during it, because never in my house have people been able to, like, stop talking during debates, and then I'm like, I couldn't hear what they said. So were they pretty quiet, or? There'd be times where it was quiet, but also um, as soon as someone did anything that was worthy of a reaction someone would automatically react like i think there was one point in the debate where cory booker was the last of the 12 people to speak on stage and he said something along the lines of oh i'm really happy to finally be in this debate like a half hour into the broadcast and then that got the crowd going because they're like wait did everyone forget about cory booker (laughs) (laughs) and i'm curious for the people who did watch it out of the uh six of us did everyone enjoy it more or less than the previous debates? Um, I watched, I only watched like the first hour, but compared to like, from the hour that I watched compared to previous debates, it was, it was very like cluttered with 12 people, I think. Um, even with like 10 people in the previous debates when they would have two with 10 people each, it was still pretty cluttered. And now with like two additional people, especially in the hour that I watched, it was just candidates giving like their like answers that are like almost come off like prepared speeches. And I think it was worthy uh, seeing all of the head candidates on stage together, um, I think that was entertaining and educational. Uh, but I agree, like, it's still a little bit overcrowded. I will say, like, I think more ideas on the stage are better, but then it's really hard because the, dr- the questions are always directed back to the front runners, and all of the attacks are also. So I'm excited to see how um, the campaign continues um, and to make the debates a little bit smaller so we can kind of get to the <laughs> the end of it. <laughs> That's what a lot of, at least the students I talked to were saying, was that it did seem like while they want everyone well, well represented on stage, it also meant that it was less time for people to talk and especially for front runners and leading candidates to talk. Cool, so um, for our fifth story, uh, this is an article that I wrote this past week about um, uh, there was two reports released on the impacts of uh, MGM Springfield's economic in- impact of MGM Springfield on like both Springfield and the Commonwealth as a whole. So MGM Springfield is a casino that was opened last year in August, so August of 2018, 
and the casino cost uh, $573.3 million to be built. Uh, so the two reports released were a construction impact report and then a real estate impact report. And they were conducted by UMass researchers from the Donahue Institute and it was sponsored by the Social and Economic Impacts of Gambling in Massachusetts. And then the both reports were uh, presented to the Massachusetts Gaming Commission on September 26th. And that informs the commission's annual recommendation to the legislature on gaming regulations. So to get into some specifics of the reports and the construction impact report, out of all the money that was spent on the casino to be built, about $373.8 million went to uh, Massachusetts-based firms, and about half of that money, uh, so $194.3 million, went to firms in, uh, um, in Hampton County. Uh, and then in over two-thirds of the construction workers were Massachusetts residents, and about 36% of the workers are from Hampton County. Uh, the report also concluded that statewide economic uh, activity increased by $849 million over the five-year construction period, uh, and that new activity totaled $512 million. And the report found that 1,000 new jobs were created or supported by this economic activity, um, accruing about $397 million in total income. And then also the uh, in the real estate impact report, it looked at like uh, how housing and real estate was changed by the casino. And in this report, um, they found that the since the awarding of a casino license to MGM Springfield, that it didn't have an effect on Springfield's real estate m market or that of the surrounding communities in quote any major way. However, they did note that the casino may have led to unused space in the city and could lead to a greater need for housing in smaller communities outside of Springfield. Uh, and they also found that single-family homes in Springfield um, increased in 2014, um, but it's difficult, quote, it's difficult to truly distinguish the impact of the casino from the more general economic recovery of sales of single-family homes. Um, so yeah, um, that was pretty cool. I think it's cool that like UMass researchers are, are kind of looking into um, different stuff in the area and how it, and kind of the impacts of that. But um, we can move on to the last story. So the last story, uh, Irina, you wrote this, is about um, the School of Public Policy going through an expansion. Um, yeah, this is a cool story. I was excited to cover it just because it seems like a cool opportunity for new for incoming students. Um, and yeah, it was announced about a month ago from the School of Public Policy that they're going to be expanding their school. So um, there's three main things that they're doing. One of them is a new undergraduate major, which is really cool because they mainly just cater to graduate students. Right now, um, they're going to be hiring new faculty. I think they're hiring three new faculty members within the next year. And then they're expanding their graduate programs. Um, and one of the things I learned when I was doing the article is that the School of Public Policy only was really created in 2015. It, got, it came out of the Center for Public Policy and, and, and Administration. Um, so since 2015, they've been working on just budgeting and planning and figuring out kind of how they wanted to structure the school. Um, and so now they're finally being at, beginning to roll out those plans that they were um, working on for four, the past four years. So it's been a long time coming. And yeah, the undergrad major is supposed to open up in about two years, so in the fall of 2021. Um, and it's going to be available for freshmen to jump into, but it's also going to be available for current students who want to add it on as a major. One of the things that the dean was saying is that it's really designed to be um, very hands-on and very easy to add on as a major. And he was saying that like public policy is something that's going to affect any field that you're in, the government is going to have an effect on any kind of job that you want to do. So he was saying that it's really like beneficial for students to know more about public policy and how it works. Um, so it's going to be available for anyone who wants to 
added on. Um, one thing I will say is that right now they have a certificate program and they're not sure what they're going to do with that once the new major is in. So I'm excited to see, or I'm interested in seeing like what they decide to do with that approach and if they're going to still leave like the certificate program as an option for students. Well, um, I wonder like, so right now I think public policy is a class for like a political science class. I wonder if there's going to be like any like overlap between like political science and public policy because just in general the topics are so like similar. I think so. I mean, I asked them um, if it's going to be a major within SBS, and it is. And so I think that they probably are going to be very similar. I think that they might even share like some faculty because the public policy or school of public policy only has is going to have three of its own in the near future, and then they're hiring six more in the next two years after that. So I think that there's going to be a lot of overlap. So might be a good double major. <laughs> well, I was curious about that with the curriculum, uh, whether it would be operate more like social thought and political economy, where you take courses in many different departments and it accumulates together, uh, and there's a few classes offered specifically for that major, uh, or whether a majority of the classes would be officer, offered within the School of Public Policy, and whether that would create almost doubles between you know public policy and political science or other courses like that. I think they did say it is intended to be interdisciplinary, so there is going to be a lot of opportunity to take courses within other um, departments, especially because I know the certificate program right now allows students to concentrate in like a specific policy area. So depending on what you want to do and how you want to navigate that, you can. there's a lot of opportunity to take classes within other um, areas besides public policy specifically. Very cool. So um, I think that's all the time we have for now. It was great having everyone listen. Tune in next time. And once again, I'm Will Malice. I'm Abby Sharpentier. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm Cassie McGrath. I'm Marina Kostake. And I'm Chris McLaughlin. And you've been listening to the Collegiate News Hour. The music for this podcast was created by Joaquin Crude and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.